Hi, I'm Jason Sachs, author of The American Comic Book Chronicles of the 1990s, co-author of The American Comic Book Chronicles of the 1970s and the 1980s. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. The reason I mention The American Comic Book Chronicles, aside from the fact that I'm really proud of the books and would love for you to check them out, um, they're available on Amazon or um, through tomorrows.com in both print and digital format, is that this week's guest is Kurt Mitchell. Kurt wrote The American Comic Book Chronicles in the 1940s, specifically 1940 through 1944, which is now available through previews, available through tomorrows.com, or available for pre-order through amazon.com. I had a great time visiting with Kurt at his place in Tacoma, Washington, chatting about some of the hidden gems and amazing comics he found in researching his 1940s book. And I think you will really enjoy this conversation. I should mention that there are show notes and features from many of the comics we talk about on comicscavalcade.tumblr.com. C-O-M-I-C-S, cavalcade.tumblr.com. Uh, check them out because there's a lot of great material there. If you enjoy Kurt's interview, uh, let me know. We're probably going to talk again, and I would love to get your feedback on questions you would like to have me ask him. So I uh, hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening. You wrote from the 40s, 1940 to 1944. Correct. And 1940, I mean, Captain America is kind of the big event of 1940, right? He was the big event of 1942. 42? Yes. No, excuse me, 41. Okay. 41, yeah. He, he, the book actually came out at the end of 1940, but the first issue was cover dated January 1941, so that is where we cover it. Right, and, the under the rules of the series. Under the rules of the series. The cover date is the important day, yeah. That's right, uh, which, which caused me no small amount of kvetching in the course of writing this book. There were times when I just cursed that rule because it was so hard to remember to, to follow it. Uh-huh, well, you find different sources online, too. It's a, it's a little harder for your books than mine, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had to, getting the sources for some of that material, I mean, there's, there's so much of that information that just isn't there and isn't ever going to be there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I had to be upfront about that in writing the book. You know, there's just some things we're never going to know. There's a lot that's writ- been written about it, too, over the years, so you had a lot to build on. True, but a lot of it turns out not to be true. Interesting. Uh, I mean, m- most of the, the big myths about those days have already been busted. I mean, people know now that that uh, Victor Fox never worked for DC. He wasn't their accountant, and he didn't steal the idea of doing comics from them. Um, what are some of the others? Uh, I can't think of any right off the top of my head. But the things that, that deep geeking okay. tells you about. You know, the things that common... Comic fans comically know, but most other people, would their eyes would just glaze over as you talked about it. But you did a ton of research for this, and you've had to kind of filter the research, though, I'd imagine. Then. I did, and and the filtering process was interesting, because for each 40-page chapter, I usually had about 140 pages of notes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, breaking, breaking each year down by publisher, by title, by feature, and then tracking down those elusive credits, which were often not right as far as some of the source material goes. We were talking about that at Jet, right? Yeah. I, I had to do some really deep diving into the history of Fox Comics, that, that pre-war incarnation of Fox. So I don't know much about Fox other than Victor Fox. Was, wasn't he one of the guys who was like, I'm the king of comics? He, he was the king of comics. 
and a lot of people started doing work for Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a shady businessman. He, there were a lot of them at the time. There were a lot of them, but he was one of the shadiest. He, well, he had a, he had a, you know, he'd been arraigned for mail fraud back in 1929. Oh. Back when he was a stockbroker. Huh. Okay. So he'd fallen on hard times, and he ended up publishing an astrology magazine that was distributed by this the Independent News, the distributor that DC's Harry Donenfeld don't have interest in. Okay. And that was how he found out about Action Comics blowing the doors off the market. And, of course, he immediately went out and hired people to create him a Superman clone. And that had just been two years before the Superman hit, right? I mean, it's... And this was still less than a year. Less than a year. Which is just so hard to imagine, right? But at the same time, it's it changed everything. It did. And, and Superman number one was one of the first comic books that actually had to go back into print. Was that like spring 1940 or something? Yes. No, it was spring of 39. 39, okay. Yeah. It's a little outside the range of the book, but... Just just a, ha- just a hair. Do you have a feeling like you were writing about like the aftermath of an earthquake or something? Actually, I felt like I was writing about a fireworks show. Every time you think you'd seen every possible variation there could be, boom, here'd be another one. Huh. Okay. And not just in terms of superheroes, but in terms of the teen humor books and the funny animal books. And you think you know everything. I came into this project thinking, well, that's a pretty good fit. I know a lot about the Golden Age. And by the time I got halfway through the book, I realized that I didn't know anything about the Golden Age that I thought I knew. What were some of the things that you really learned? Well, there's so many companies that were out there and, and such. You, you, there's hidden gems in just about every old comic, mm-hmm. if you know, if you're patient and you and you look for it, okay. There's there's a lot of little backup features that maybe only ran three issues, but you look at them and you go, that's that's gold, huh? And it's too bad it got ignored, or artists who never get talked about anymore. Um, you know, a lot of the artists who worked in those early days of comics had been pulp illustrators, and the pulp market was starting to fade, so they were looking for work. And some of them were just amazing illustrators, and nobody talks about so them. So who are some of the people you discovered? People like Harold DeLay, who worked for Funny Zinc. He never had a big feature, but everything he drew was beautifully illustrated. Where would I be able to find him? Like if I was to, so there's a that big internet classic comics archive where you can find a lot of right. old well, strips, worked, right? He did a lot of work for Novelty Press, um, doing backup features for Target and Blue Bolt. He did, uh, let me think, what else did he do? Um, boy, it's, it, this is part of the problem is I absorbed so many names and characters. And mm-hmm. like I still, there's, there's three or four characters whose origins I confuse all the time. In some ways, it's easier for you than it is for me also because a lot of these, these IPs are still around and obviously the, most of the creators are still around. For you, it's like 50 years ago. Families are long past. These are like, oh yeah, this work is long forgotten. So yeah. I mean, yeah. Fortunately, there have been a lot of people who, who've gotten their memoirs down before they passed on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used a couple of books by Joe Simon. I used the Steranko histories. I used um, 
a lot of good a lot of good research out there well you know you know the names i'm sure you yeah yeah who are some other great artists that you discovered oh let's see who else uh i love henry kiefer okay that's a name i don't that's not familiar either his his best known work was probably his long run on wombie jungle boy in uh jungle comics from fiction house okay which featured so i mean he did beautiful animal pictures um, what else did he do? He was the first artist on the Street and Smith comic book version of Doc Savage. Oh, okay. Which I don't think has ever been reprinted, now that I think I of it. I don't think it has. Is it good? Is it, like, similar to the Doc Savage pulps? It's it's very simplified. Okay. Um, and uh, they only use two of the five aids. Okay. They only use Monk and Ham. We never see the others. Uh, the shadow was done pretty much the same way. They stripped it, support the supporting cast from the pulps down to the bone. They brought it down to just Margot Lane from the radio series, and the cop that followed them around, trying always trying to catch the shadow. And simplified stories a bit, I'd imagine. Yeah, often using pulp plots, okay. uh, but literally stripped to the bone to fit into ten pages. And then for a while, they, there were, there had been a shadow newspaper strip, and for a while it just reprinted the newspaper strip. I think I remember reading about that, right? Yeah. Huh. And it was the same same team for both the comic and the and the uh, syndicated strip. It do, was, do you think was, they were shortened because of the length restrictions, or because they felt like they were writing this stuff for kids? Both. Okay. Um, later on, they began to use continued stories that would carry over from issue to issue, so they were able to do longer narratives. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of these companies, they you know, it was literally everything was done in one, and you had no issue to issue continuity because you didn't know if you were going to be able to print the stories in the proper order or not. Right. Well, this wasn't just Victor Fox, who was a fly by night publisher. Oh, no. There were lots of them. But surprisingly, a lot of the publishers were arms of larger publishing concerns. Mm-hmm. Novelty Press was a, an imprint of Curtis Publications, who were the publishers of the Saturday Evening Post and the Ladies Home Journal. And all kinds of respectable, respectable yeah. publications. What did they put out? In, what, what was some of their titles? Uh, for Novelty Press? Yeah. They did Blue Bolt. Okay. They did Target Comics, um, which was the Target and the Targeteers. Which is, it's very cutely uh, 1940s. Yes, very 1940s. Although, interestingly, when the war came, they enlisted all of their superheroes, and they all became straight war strips. Okay. Um, Blue Bolt didn't use his powers and never put on his costume they just all called him blue bolt huh and the target and the targeteers were split up into each of them in a different uh uh branch of the service and they might occasionally reunite them and let them wear their costumes for a mission but otherwise they wore their uniforms and had regular war adventures so they just treated this another line and they were a publishing company like they might treat crossword puzzle books or something eastern color did the same thing with their superheroes they put them all in uniform and then it, it was just no, you know, they put out the Saturday Evening Post and they put out Blue Bolt Comics and they put out whatever else I'd imagine. Exactly. At the time when like the newsstands were just full of material because it's one of the few places that was affordable entertainment. That's right. That's exactly right. So you Street know, you had... Smith you mentioned, DC kind of grew up out, uh, I guess national at the time, right? Grew up out, out of its own. It didn't own... become national until 1948. So I know it had the All-American line. What was the second line? It was Detective. Okay. They called it... And... and... It was kind of an interesting relationship between the two companies, because 
Each of them had was half owned by the same person. Jack Leibowitz owned half of DC and half of All American. But the two companies maintained separate offices in different parts of New York and had different bullpens of artists and writers. They they shared distribution and printing costs, but they were editorially completely independent. Of course, because they emerged as the victor of the 1940s, uh, we kind of think of them as the prestige house. Were they actually the prestige publisher for the time? Well, Dell was really the prestige publisher. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Because, you know, that was a big, respectable publishing company, and it was affiliated with Western Printing, which was one of the biggest publishers of children's books and coloring books and and uh, activity books going. They, you know, they'd already had a huge hit with uh, Big Little Books, mm-hmm. and then they teamed up again for comics, and Dell was always the best-selling comic line through... I think the early 60s. Well, that was the big revelation of, I think it was John Wells' 50s book, is how Dell dominated the comics market. Absolutely. And you know, we have this narrative, this tangent, I realize it, but we have this narrative of the 50s of the Keith Oliver hearings killing EC Comics, and comics fell into a deep decline. But it's the opposite really happened. Comics kept thriving. It's just they were intended for younger children, which makes sense because they were hitting the younger baby right. boomers at the time. And one of the things I found, because there's a lot of apologists for the comics industry in the 40s, that you know, or for comics today, really, who are just so freaked out at the thought that we might think that comics are childish. But going back and looking at those early comics, you realize, yes, they were always for children. Mm -hmm. That was the consciousness of the publishers, was we are publishing material that is being read by children. Mm -hmm. And even though it doesn't seem like it was necessarily aimed at children, that was who they believed they were publishing for. That's who the advertisers believed they were advertising to. You see it in all kinds of ways, in editorials, where you know the publisher refers to himself in the case of one publisher he called himself Uncle Joe uh-huh. and addressed the audience as boys and girls all American did that too um, the use of primary colors in in the artwork um, the simplification of plots mm-hmm. it's it's fairly clear that that's who they thought they were aiming at and yet at the same time there weren't that many comics that were actually written with children in mind Okay. They were, you know, outside of a handful of titles, it was all material that would have been perfectly at home in the pulps. Okay, so just maybe interesting. Dumbed down. That's dumbed down a little bit. Okay, but still like totally appropriate for the time. Absolutely. Huh? Do you, have, do you, so you mentioned a few discover. Well, that's what was another thing you just, or another few things you discovered that were really surprising to you. Well, let's see. Uh, other artists who I don't hear enough about. Harry Parkhurst had been another pulp artist and worked for a, a small company that wasn't never only they published three comics only one of them under the name that I refer to them in the book because you know how it was back then I admit, I think you probably do anyway um, a lot of publishers use multiple corporate identities to publish under right for for many reasons for many reasons and so this company was actually, it was a line of comics that were all produced out of what was known as Majestic Studios, which okay. was a small packaging house run by uh, a gentleman named Adolph Barreau. And they'd originally been put in business by Harry Donenfeld to provide illustrations for his pulp line. And at some point, two of the artists who worked for him, Charles Quinlan and Worth Carnahan, 
went to him and convinced him, let's find somebody to publish some comics. Mm-hmm. And so they found publishers willing to carry their comics, and they published three titles, um, each through a different publishing company. And they were wonderful books, absolutely wonderful books, and, and they're completely forgotten today. What are those three titles? They were Champion Comics, OK Comics, and... Shoot, I'm forgetting the other the name of the other It's one. all right, it's all right. But, like, uh, what made them... So part of it is the artwork, I'm sure, but... And the quality of the scripting. Okay. And the fact that they were doing something different than what was already on the stands. Very quiet compared to the material that was on the stands. So kind of a more sophisticated approach. Hmm. But still, you know, fantasy and and pulp-driven. And Parkhurst in particular, I thought, was a very good artist. He drew two strips for them. One was called Neptina, Queen of the Deep, which was sort of a female submariner. Okay. And the other was called Jungle Man, and it was a Tarzan knockoff with a, a, a white savage living in the jungles of Indonesia and running around accompanied by a albino tiger. And Parker's provided the most wonderful illustrations. They were just completely atmospheric. You, you had the underwater scenes, you had the jungle scenes, and each was absolutely appropriate for what they were doing. And I don't know who did their coloring. Coloring, as you know, back then was just atrocious. Right. No... no attempted artistry whatsoever. Even into the 1960s in many cases, yeah. And these books had the best coloring I, I've ever seen for 1940s comics. Wow. So this is a much more sophisticated production process. Yeah, then. so of course it didn't sell. Okay. But Parkhurst went on to draw the Hopalong Cassidy book for quality. Mm-hmm. So he continued to have a long career in comics, but he's just he's kind of forgotten today, and I think it's sad. A lot of it is that these guys were illustrators, rather than than what Will Eisner and Jack Kirby were, where they were true innovators in using comics as a storytelling device. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why these other artists have kind of gotten overlooked over the years, because they really weren't doing anything new as far as developing comics as a medium in its own right. So do you feel a lot of the purpose of the book then is to resurrect a lot of these lost talents? It didn't start out to be. But yeah. yeah, it kind of feels that way, especially there's a lot of female talent that's not gotten mentioned over the years outside of maybe, you know, Trina Robbins' uh, Women in Cartoonists, or Women Cartoonists book. I know a little bit about Tarpe Mills, but not a lot, about a lot of other cartoonists from there. Or Mena Fraden, I guess, was working early in the industry, but uh, probably outside of your era. She's in there yet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we have people like Lily Renee, who started at fiction house when she was 18 she was a war refugee from austria Mm. um you have uh jill elgin who was only 16 when she started drawing for harvey um you have barbara hall the creator of the black cat oh right yeah and that that was a popular series that lasted decades for decades you had fran hopper who was another artist who worked for fiction house for her entire career you had a couple of uh, people who got in and out of the industry. There was an artist named Lillian Chesney, who was a well-known children's book illustrator, who drew Classics Illustrated briefly during the war, because her husband had been drafted and she needed to eat. Is that Landon Chesney, or is that a different person? That's a different person. Okay. Her husband, I mean, her connect, husband was, was Stanley Zuckerberg, who okay. drew under the name Stanley Maxwell. I oh, got it. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, well, that matches a lot of the stories I heard, too. I mean, even folks like Joe Kubert rushing into the industry in their 
teams, in their teams because they were just desperate for talented people. And Matt Baker is another example where um, you know they didn't really care about skin color as much as they cared about the ability to meet a deadline. Exactly. So you you were able to uncover a lot of people like that. It sounds like. Well, I can't really take credit for uncovering them because I'm really kind of a syncretist more than anything else. I'm, yeah. I'm using the work that's been done by you know scores of, of dedicated comics historians over the years. I'm just kind of taking it all and putting in and arranging it into a different uh, picture, giving kind of the big picture by looking at the details. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the the more subtle differences between your book and mine is that you got to depend on a lot of kind of secondary scholarship. Not got to, but there was there's been so much written about it over the years. Alter Ego's done so many interviews with classic creators too that I'm sure you could call on. And um, for me, a lot of it was assembled from primary sources, from from material from the time about the industry. That was an advantage I didn't have. Yeah. Um, I, but at the same time, like I was, I felt like I was trailblazing some of this research. One of the few people has put a lot of these details together. And I did, I did some of that. That was what happened with the pre-war foxes. Mm-hmm. I found that the information that was out there, as far as who was doing doing the uh, editorial work, who was who was editing, and who was drawing, were all were not written, were not uh, not adequately researched, and and nobody really mm. taking the time to look at the books themselves and see does it match what they're saying, and it didn't. So I was able to work out um, the four editors their periods who worked at Fox before he went belly up in 42. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to do it primarily by editorial style. Mm, right. Because yeah. they started out being done by the Eisner Iger shop with Will Eisner doing acting as the editor. Mm-hmm. Um, then they and Fox had a falling out in the wake of the Wonder Man lawsuit mm-hmm. where DC sued them for plagiarizing Superman. Yeah, we should talk about that also. Yeah, keep a going. Suit, a suit they lost, uh-huh. that Fox lost. Uh, so he broke off his relationships with them and hired Joe Simon to be his editor. Simon lasted three months and couldn't take any more of Fox and went over and became uh, Timely's editor-in-chief. He was replaced at Fox by Alfred Harvey who had been a King Features letterer and was hired to be Joe Simon's assistant at Fox. As as in eventually Harvey Comics? As in he left there to start his own line of comics. Hmm. And he was replaced by an editor named Bill Scott, W.W. Scott. And he... He was the one whose whose editorial style I could recognize the easiest because he insisted on every story being drawn in the same eight-panel grid okay. with no variation. The only exception was on the first page, the first four panels could be one big panel to serve as a splash. Okay. Previous to that, Fox was known for allowing full-page panels, two-page panels, stories with two or three panels each, which was unheard of, lots of action. Um artists were given their their heads to design the page the way they wanted to do it mm-hmm. and so when that that lockstep thing comes in you can see there's a you can see that there's a definite shift in what's happening mm-hmm. and then on the tail end of it when it ends you can see the next editor abner sundell coming in and it all goes back to the way it was except they they hired a whole new packaging service and so the books had an entirely different look hmm 
So you really got to follow these this material through like lots I, of evolution. It, it came down to actually sitting down with scans of the original books and going page by page and comparing art styles. I was able to identify one uh, artist every time so he popped up by the way he drew shoulder blades. Huh. Did you share this with your fellow uh, historians online? I have not had a chance to yet. That's That's one of the things I'm going to do while I have some time is go in and and, uh, make corrections to the Grand Comics database where it needs to be. Yeah, because you know folks like that Dr. Michael Vassallo and Mm -hmm. uh, Barry Pearl and others that spent so much of their time looking into this. A few things we have to talk about. Okay. Simon and Kirby... Yes. have come down as kind of one of the most iconic pairings of your of the era you wrote about. First of all, do you feel like they really were kind of one of the transcendent teams of their time? Absolutely. I think they are as important a figure, a pair of figures in comics as you could ask for. I think only Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster as a team had a bigger impact. Uh, Captain on America? On the creative side. Okay, on the creative side, right. It's legendary now that the first 10 issues of Captain America kind of set the template, not just for that character, but for a lot of action comics since then. They, It was the Simon and Kirby Captain America that triggered my interest in Golden Age comics. When they were reprinted in fantasy masterpieces mm-hmm. in the 1960s, it was a, an eye-opener for me. It was a revelation. You know, It was an epiphany. It's seeing seeing what what Kirby was like in 1940 and what Captain America were like in 1940, compared to what they were in the 60s, was like finding out your uncle who just sits on the couch all day and drinks beer and watches TV used to be the star center of his basketball team. <laughs> it was amazing, and and since that was set me off, I wanted to know more about Golden Age comics, and then right about that time, DC started exploring its Golden Age past. Mm-hmm. And so I got to see things like John Cicada's Superman, mm-hmm. and I got to see Sheldon Muldoff's Hawkman, and I got to got introduced to Lou Fine and his work at Quality, mm-hmm. and my enthusiasm for it just grew and grew and grew because there's just something about those early days, that raw uh, feeling of play as they they discover this new genre. Yeah. And shape it and define it and decide what's part of it and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And some of it, you know, some of those decisions that seem strange in hindsight, but they live on. You know, the the teen, the kids, the costume kid sidekick, beginning with Robin. Mm-hmm. What an odd step for them to take, because there's nothing remotely realistic about it. Not at all. You know, what kind of a madman drags a <laughs> child out into the night right. to fight killers and cro- crooks? It makes no sense unless you realize that adventure, the adventure genres, all of the adventure genres, the man-boy team was standard. You know, you go back to Long John Silver and Jim Hawkins mm-hmm. or... Uh, Terry Ryan and, or Terry Lee and Pat Ryan from mm-hmm. Terry and the Pirates. Uh, culturally, we were accustomed to that concept. It just, but when they adapted it to the costumed hero genre, it just, it was just kind of a disconnect from reality. I always played with the idea too, like that the 
kid is the proxy for us and because the hero is always talking to the kid it gives them a chance to have it explain their thoughts to us well according to jerry robinson who was an early artist on batman that was exactly what co-creator bill finger had in mind when he created robin that was his justification for it was Mm -hmm. that the youngest readers were too young to identify with batman and they needed someone to identify with and the story would move faster if batman had someone to explain the plot to so it all fell together that way like striking me was the early dr fate stories I can't remember the artist on that work. Howard Sherman. Howard Sherman. The early ones where he's wearing the Onion Dome helmet. Yes. Are just otherworldly beautiful. Yes. And and like, this is like a bolt from above in a way. Like, I didn't know comics could be that wonderful, that spooky, that interesting. And then they killed it. Yeah. They they uh, cut his helmet in half. Mm-hmm. They stripped off all his occult powers. They stopped having him fight magical opposition, and that was all because of the DC All-American Editorial Advisory Board that was assembled at that time um, because Jack Leibowitz, the co-owner of DC, was a shrewd man and he saw the way the wind was blowing and knew that there was beginning to become an outlaw, a backlash against comics because some of the publishers were going too far. There was, there was you know, a lot of violence, a lot of gunplay, a lot of... Uh, sexual titillation and you're talking like pick up. in 1942 43 this is, this is 40 oh, okay so very early on very early on and the editorial advisory board was put together uh, and they consisted of very respectable people in their fields in the fields of child psychology and education and uh mythology and uh, uh i'm forgetting others english uh, the Child Study Association of America was affiliated with it. Um, and these people came in and they said, well, here's what you need to get rid of mm. uh, to make what you're doing child-friendly. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, while it worked, I mean, and it, it kept DC pretty much above the fray when it came to criticism of comics from there, from there on, but it also meant the end of several good characters. Yeah. including Dr. Fate and the Spectre. It was right. at that point that the Spectre was uh, stripped of most of his mighty powers and became the stooge of Percival Pop, the super cop. And this, so the Spectre was a uh, Jerry, uh, Joe Simon, not Joe Simon, excuse me. It was a Jerry Siegel Jerry creation. Jerry Siegel creation. And Siegel's career was also interesting. I mean, what's your take on like the, this myth that Siegel is ripped off? Oh, he was definitely ripped off. Okay. Um, but at the same time, he worked for many, many years in the industry. He did, but the industry treated him like dirt. Okay. You know, I... How quickly did he and, and, and uh, Schuster move off of Superman? Well, they stayed with it until they filed their first lawsuit against the company. Okay. Um, Siegel gave it up, of course, when he was drafted in 42. Mm-hmm. And he would occasionally supply a script when they could but for the most part other people wrote the books at that time and that was actually okay with the editors with the then editors because they had kind of gotten the feeling that superman had grown bigger than his creator Mm -hmm. that siegel's idea of what was appropriate for this character was too narrow Mm -hmm. and too quiet Mm -hmm. that superman was a much bigger character than he was being allowed to be was that before or after the Fleischer cartoons? That they... This was during. During, okay. Because I, it, my feeling is that that really opened our eyes up to what other people can do 
in terms of expanding the the scope of the character. Exactly. And you know, Jerry Siegel was so often he just wanted to tell the same old stories of of you know, corrupt politicians and and evil businessmen and gangsters. And Superman, as he's as he got more and more powerful, those kind of enemies just weren't going to cut it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it really was the case of I, I don't remember who said it, but Superman's biggest problem was figuring out who to punch, and once he figured that out, the story was over. Right, right. But, but by the time I got to the end of the period I'm covering, we begin to see villains like the Prankster mm-hmm. and Mr. Mix's Tiplick mm-hmm. and other characters who. Superman had to outwit. It wasn't enough to simply be Superman. And that's from the bringing in of new writers and different influences. Yes. The radio show had launched by that point too, right? The radio show had launched in early 1940. Mm-hmm. There's professional writers yes. taking on this work and bringing their diverse viewpoints also. They also were the ones who first made Superman fly. Right. Because Superman could fly from the very beginning of the radio series. Now, you'd read a lot of those stories through the reprints and stuff, obviously, but coming back to them again, how did it fit in the larger world of the comics you re- you reread? Like 1940 Superman, for example, does that is that kind of at the same level of quality or complexity as some of the other work, or does it still no, have that spark actually, of uniqueness? A lot of the other strips were beginning to surpass Superman. Okay, it was beginning. It was kind of beginning to look old-fashioned. Mm. And I think that's part of the reason they were anxious to get Siegel and Schuster off the book. Okay. Um, you had things like uh, Will Eisner's Spirit. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's that's maybe not the the easiest comparison for Siegel and Schuster because the no, Spirit is a not. level you above. Also, you also had Simon and Kirby's Captain America. Yeah. And Kirby completely redefined the way action was depicted in comics. Mm-hmm. And Superman looked dull. By comparison, or you had uh, Lou Fine's Black Condor, who we saw in flight, you know, beautiful, graceful pictures of this character in flight, you know, with with the city laid out below them, and over at Superman, you had him hopping from building to building like a kangaroo. Uh huh. And in you know very stiff, unconvincing poses. Now Fine's a great lost figure. He is, although not to the Cognacetti. Yeah. People in the know know Lou Fine, and well, he was extremely influential. I'll put it this way. like I have a large collection of Will Eisner comics, and as I mentioned, like, I have a lot of the DC stuff. I only have very much Lou Fine in my collection, and part of it's access to it. Like I would love like a beautiful collection of the Ray or the Black Condor. I wish somebody would. I wish somebody would put out a volume of Lou Fine work. And from what I understand, he's a very interesting person as well. He was. He was. Uh, he had contracted polio as a kid and was confined to his bed for like a year. And during that time, he studied the great magazine illustrators and began copying what they were doing. And that's how he learned to develop his style. He was basically self-taught. Mm. And by the time he got to doing comics... Um, he had developed this wonderful style and he was one of the first artists to realize that you could break away from the grid and produce uh, and use design on a page to guide the eye from point to point to point without forcing them to do the you know one panel after the other 
and it, some of it is just breathtaking. Really? Yeah. Even quiet scenes like I, I, I like to, when I, as I go through these books, if I see a panel that really strikes me, mm-hmm. I copy it, and I've got a whole little scrapbook of of funny panels and really well drawn panels and, and definitive panels for certain characters. There's one of a city wharf at night that Fine did. Just and it's just a back it's just a, a, a background shot. There's no figures in it. And it's just amazing. It's so moody and so atmospheric. Wow. Huh. And it was for a Captain Marvel no, not a Captain Marvel story. That'd be the wrong company. What was it for? It was for it was for the Ray, I think. Okay. Okay. For quality comics, which actually kinda earned its name. It really did. Uh, it, from the top down, from the publisher down, they really were dedicated to it. And he one of he was one of those rare publishers that was willing to put his money where his mouth was mm-hmm. and pay top talent to do what they do best and to stay out of their way while they did it. And they lasted for well into the 1950s doing some outstanding comics. Yes. Black Ho- the early Blackhawks is wonderful. Oh, Reed Crandall's Blackhawks? Ooh, it doesn't get better than that. Right. Artistically, for sure. You know, Jack Cole's Plastic Man. Mm-hmm. One of the best cartoonists of the 40s. Yes. Easily. And that was one of the things I discovered was Jack Cole's earlier work for uh, Lev Gleason on Silver Streak and Daredevil, mm-hmm. creating those characters and, and finding his style, finding how his rhythm and, and, and uh, flavor as a humorist. Uh, wonderful stuff. Oh, it has a. Yeah, thankfully DC put out eight volumes of the Plastic Man archive, and which I have only one of. But oh, okay. I was glad to have that. Yeah, because um, the, the, they're spectacular. They really, especially are. for their time. Um, yeah, and so Quality was just a great production house, or just house in general. Um, uh, and they were one of the first to recognize that the superhero was going out of fashion. Mm-hmm and began dropping their characters, keeping only the best ones, and, and converting to other genres. And that's even during the time of your book. Yes. They, it was already starting. Uh, even DC was beginning to downsize their superhero titles. Not so much the titles, but the number of features per title. Mm-hmm. Moving into different... It's adding more diversity to the genres of the titles. And, yes. Um, so we got to talk about Eisner and the Eisner-Eiger shop, too, because I think he's one of the probably five towering figures of his era. Absolutely. Um, so first of all, in terms of artistic talent, there's few better. No, and they're, they're really even isn't. the earliest spirit strips have this spark of beauty to them, both in craftsmanship as well as in the storytelling. Yes, that just well, they, they imp- went hand in hand. Yeah, and I think part of that was because the spirit was the first one Eisner was actually allowed the time to work on to figure out how to do something other than the bare minimum that they had to do as a studio when mm-hmm. he was with Eisner Iger. Because, you know, they had to they had to crank those pages out so fast for so many publishers. There was no time to to uh, fine tune a plot or to rewrite dialogue to make it snappier. Mm-hmm. Or even to, you know, if you accidentally drew two left feet on the character, they were gonna have two left feet because there wasn't time to make it better. Mm-hmm. And Eisner had had felt all along that comics were a medium that could do more than what it was doing. He felt it was a perfect medium for short stories. And that was what he wanted to do all along. 
Mm-hmm. And finally, he had the opportunity to do it when they brought him the spirit section to do. Now, they brought him the spirit section, or did he sell it? To... Well, he he created the characters for it, but the idea came from the uh, Cowell brothers, who were the owners of the Register and Tribune syndicate uh, and publishers of Look Magazine. And they had the idea of publishing a mini comic book, 32 uh, pages to start with, and then 16 later? No, always 16. Always 16. Always 16. As an insert in Sunday newspaper. That's right. And they, they went to uh, Busy Arnold, the publisher of Quality, to talk to him about doing a do, being partners with them because they didn't really know the comic book industry and they needed somebody who knew who the, the players were. Mm-hmm. And he went to Eisner and said, why don't you ditch that Jerry Iger jerk and come work for us on this? And uh, Eisner said, I will, but only if I retain the rights to the characters. And after some hemming and hawing, they said, okay, we're going to copyright it in Arnold's name, but we have the legal proviso in the contract that if we ever cancel the books or for some reason they are no longer successful, all the rights to the characters revert to you, Mm -hmm. which was an unheard of deal for those days where the company owned everything. Yeah. Yeah, for the, the whole business that Street, Street Smith was built on. Exactly. Um, but the, the, I'm a huge fan of Eisner and the spirit, and so yeah, it's a treat to read that early work again. And um, you, know, uh, you know that Lou Fine ghosted for him for, for several years. Yeah, for several years, right. Yeah, and of course, much later on, uh, folks like uh, cartoonist Pfeiffer worked for him as well as yes. others, but that and, was... And Wally Wood. Wally Wood, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, what other? What else really surprised you in researching this book? I think the sheer volume of funny animal material surprised mm. me. Okay. Because, you know, usually you think about the Dell books, and that's pretty much the end of it. But by the mid-40s, almost every line was publishing at least one funny animal title. Mm-hmm. A lot of it packaged by the same people over and over again. And some of them, there were several companies that didn't have continuing characters. There'd be a whole new set of features in every issue of their titles. And you saw so many bizarre concepts come and go. Um, you almost wonder how they could, like, just generate that much material with with these new characters every month or every quarter or whatever it may be. It, well, I think they were just try, trying anything to throw it against the wall to see if it would stick because, you know... They didn't have the advantage of being able to tie into an animation studio and mm-hmm. their characters the way that Dell had and the way Timely did through the Terry Toons comics. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, most of the people who were doing these comics were moonlighting animators anyway. But they had to come up with, you know, what animal do we use now? You know, there's only so <laughs> many animals to go around. Well, they found some creative ways to do it. Really? You know, and, and plus, at, you know, there was one period where you, you could open a comic and there'd be a funny animal western and a funny animal detective show and a funny animal sitcom and a funny animal science fiction series. Huh. And they just were experimenting. And most of it didn't work. And most, some of it didn't work because the people doing it were absolutely had no talent whatsoever. Uh-huh. And some of it did work, but the kids didn't buy it. And it's just it, it there was this scramble to grab onto that market that Dell really had a stranglehold on. Mm-hmm. And it's just really amusing. And there are some great little series tucked so away in there. You got me intrigued by like funny animal western or funny animal sci fi. Oh sure. Um well actually there was a series called Peter Pup that ran in Jumbo Comics. Okay. That was originally done by Bob Kane, 
who started out as a as a cartoonist, not a, a you know, a realistic, not realistic, you know what I mean, a, a adventure artist. Right. Um, and it is a sci-fi strip. Mm-hmm. Peter Pup is a Disney-style character who gets talked into piloting a spa- an experimental spaceship by this wacko professor he knows and goes off into outer space and has all these amazing adventures. That sounds really fun, actually. Um, you had, um, we mentioned uh, funny animal westerns. You have Billy the Kid, who was Billy Goat, a Billy Goat gunfighter. <laughs> and his pal Oscar the Ostrich, who was the the uh, mayor and postmaster and telegraph operator and share, and uh, deputy and, and of everything of their puny little frontier town. Mm-hmm. Um, you had funny animal private eyes. Huh. And uh, like I said, uh, there's one strip that Fox ran actually called Pussy Catnip, which was about this sexy torch singer who owned a bar. And it was, well, it wasn't adult in the sense of being, you know, prurient and in your face. Right. But it was not your typical funny animal strip. I'm sure, yeah. And so that's that's another example of just the strange little gems I find here and there, ideas that just sank without a trace, but were really ahead of their time. This must make you feel like you want to put together a collection of this material. Well, I kind of have one. I mean, as far as an electronic copies of yeah, things. yeah, I, we should maybe we should put a little uh, guide to stuff for people to look for as part of this. Well, I, that's what I tried to do with the book is okay. to to highlight these unusual things because there's so many features that would have been impossible for me to talk about everything that appeared in every comic Mm -hmm. and why would I want to so aside from the major features the ones that everybody knows um, basically I I stuck to whatever secondary features I talked about were either historically important or aesthetically successful yeah one of the things that Keith was really careful about was not adding too many kind of interesting tangents that didn't kind of feed the larger story of the book and I did avoid those I had trouble with that occasionally I, I have probably 20,000 words that were excised that were just little stories I loved because um, I just I couldn't resist but the book would have been just way too long well let me ask you I'll put make you talk on your own podcast <laughs> I um, know a little about this topic yeah how did you deal with the the putting the events of the comics in the context of the times both you know socially and historically and politically because um, that was probably the biggest challenge of yeah. the book for me yeah I was doing a lot I did a lot of reading on the uh, material outside the genre I picked up a couple books about trading cards in the 90s, for example, mm-hmm. because I felt like that was such a crucial part of understanding the decade that I had to read um, that side of things. Um, I have a, a pretty good background in the dot-com boom, um, so I uh, was able to pull some of that work out also because there's all this big inrush of money in 98 and 99 into the industry, trying to turn it into um, the big financial thing. Um, and so that was an interesting challenge as well. So it's a lot of kind of cross-pollination. Of course, you had the war, and the war informs everything. Unfortunately, I've always been a history buff, so I had the books already at hand to get my basic information from. Uh-huh. Um, and because I've always been fascinated by the 40s as a time period in our culture anyway, probably because of my parents' influence, um, I already knew 
I already knew the music, I already knew the movies, I already knew the books, I knew what was on the magazine newsstands. Um, so I was able to draw on that uh, element of it too. You know, sometimes I talk about my book as being like my PhD thesis or something in comics research. Oh, you're so right. To tell you the truth, I felt like I just, I had to write five long theses. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it was it was the hardest I've ever worked in my life. I didn't work that hard in college. I didn't work that hard out in the real world. It has been the hardest work I've ever done. And very rewarding. And very rewarding. And I think we have to stop. Oh, thank you.